The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are here this morning that, that know you and know your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, the very thought, Lord, that our names are engraved upon His hand and written upon His heart ought to move us to great joy, deep love, and a right action for the lost in this city. Father, I ask this morning that you would bless my brothers and sisters with eyes that Christ has and sees in this very place, that we might not be people who go around day to day not seeing the idolatry in our midst, not seeing all those around us who have been seduced, Lord, whose passions and desires have been subject to the worship of false gods and not to you, the one true God. I pray, Father, that you would do what only you can do, Father, by your Spirit. Melt our hearts this morning. Even now, Lord, as I'm praying, as our our thoughts are distant from you and as we're not listening closely, Lord, I pray that you would use your Spirit to melt our hearts that we might have a right love for you and for the lost. And then in that love, Lord, act rightly that we might bring the gospel, that we might reason well with all those in our mission field, certainly those here in Cambrian Park, and all those that we know, our families and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors who do not profess Christ as Lord. Father, we do not want to gather here this morning and exercise religion. We want to be rightly moved by Your Spirit. We want to hear You speak from us from Your Word, and we want to live in accordance with what You say. And so I pray, Father, You would guide our hearts this morning. Convict our minds correctly if we're not living in accordance with this teaching and make us the missionaries that you've called us and equipped us to be in this place for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So if you looked at the title of the sermon, Missionary or Imposter, I hope that it does not cause you to flee. Um, It is going to be a sermon that I pray you're able to hear And out of your joy and love for Christ, say, that is the missionary that I want to be. That is the missionary that God has called me to be and that I want to serve as in my mission field. In a sermon preached by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1873, Charles Spurgeon said this. I want you to listen as closely as you can. He said, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your children's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of Jesus' sweet love. And then he said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that, he writes, you either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him. Every Christian, he said, is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, as we join the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens and we see his great love and his great labor for the lost, it is my prayer that we take very seriously Spurgeon's dogmatic truth claim that we are either missionaries for Christ or we're imposters. And I would hope that out of our deep love for the Lord that we are not the imposters that many proclaim to be. That we don't profess Christ and not proclaim Christ. We don't claim to be a Christian and not tell others about this Savior, Christ. It is my hope that we will see this morning and be captivated by a man, the Apostle Paul, who deeply loved the Lord. And his love for the Lord and the love that God had for him compelled him to incredible action. Courageous action. And I want, us to, I want us to look at Paul, not to put him up on a pedestal. He is a sinful man. He was a sinful man, saved by grace, just like you. But I want us to see that he had a love that I want us to have, and he had a mission that I want us to have, so that we can hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and do what? And we live as the missionaries that God has called and equipped us to be. Right here in modern-day Athens, in San Jose, California. I would like us to do that this morning by looking at our text with missional eyes. I want you to hear the words 
of Dr. Luke, and I want you to hear them spoken to you, and you see as the missionary that you are. I want to look at three things in the text. Number, number one, the missionary's heart. Number two, the missionary's audience. And number three, the missionary's work. What is the heart of the missionary? Who's the audience of the missionary? And what is the work the missionary is supposed to do? Now, some of you are going to say, well, I, I think I know the answers to that already. Well, praise God if you do. Then be rightly moved by it this morning and don't say, I already know, therefore what? Therefore, we actually do. It's a grievous thing to have the knowledge and the wisdom of God and not act upon it. Amen? All right. What we're going to find this morning is that little has changed for the missionary. 2,000 years has passed since the Apostle Paul was doing his work on the earth. Time has certainly passed, and maybe some of the peripheral things have changed. I mean, we, we dress a little differently than they did. We have a little different work. We certainly use technology differently. But man's problem, his sin and alienation from God, has not changed. And therefore, the solution for that, the answer for that, which is the gospel itself, is what the missionary is, is to, supposed to do today, to enable people to know God and make a right profession of faith in Christ. The theme of the sermon is this. Christians express their love for God by loving the lost. Hmm? Christians express their love for God by how they love the lost. It's a hard thing to say that I love Jesus and I never share the gospel. It's a hard thing to say that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I never talk about Christ, this Savior of my soul, this lover of my soul. So let's look first at the missionary's heart. Point number one. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, now while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. If you remember from our sermon last week, the apostle Paul was forced to flee Berea after several of the troublemakers came down from Philippi and Thessalonica and they caused a riot. He left Silas and Timothy behind, but he did say, look at verse 15, he said, I want you to come as soon as possible. Right? He wants them there with him to do this great work in Athens. Now, most of you, if you hear the word Athens or the, the city Athens, most of you probably have some understanding from your world history, even if it dates back to 8th grade or 10th grade, whenever you had that in your, in your schooling. You probably have images of philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and you have these images of statues and, and art and literature and, of course, Greek philosophy and mythology. And, and you probably have heard before that that was the birthplace of Western civilization. And all those things actually would be right. And so you can say, I'll take an A for my quiz this morning. I thought those things do. Now, Athens, when Paul found it, was a far cry from the golden age of the fourth and fifth centuries before Jesus came on the scene. In Paul's time, it was Corinth and not Athens that was the, the political center of Greece. It was where the power players lived. But that said, Athens, even in Paul's time, was still considered the cultural and intellectual center of the entire Roman Empire. And it was, without question, in the West, the most religious place on the planet. In fact, they had a temple, a house, for virtually every single god in the Greek pantheon and other gods as well. Their temples and shrines, they filled the city. They were so filled that even in their public buildings, the public buildings served as temples to the living God. For example, the council house, where the city council actually met to do city business, it was also served, it served as a temple to Apollo and to Jupiter. The public theater where they would gather to, to watch plays served as the temple to Dionysus, the god of the wine and of ecstasy. And in the very heart of the city, of course, you know the Acropolis. That's that great plateau. You've probably seen pictures. And on that plateau in the middle of the city, they had every single temple that they had to every single Greek god in their pantheon. In other words, Athens was a place that worshipped. They worshipped. Now, Dr. Luke tells us that as Paul was awaiting the arrival of Timothy and Silas, he does a little, a little sightseeing. I mean, he's in Athens. People here, they travel thousands of miles and spend lots of money, so Paul's going to take in some of the sights. But he's not a regular tourist. The Apostle Paul is a missionary for Christ, and what he sees does not bring him joy. It breaks his heart. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Literally every place that Paul went, he saw a temple, a sanctuary, a shrine, a statue, or an altar to a false god. The city was filled with them. And so as a Christian, 
He didn't, he didn't marvel at the art. He didn't marvel at the, uh, at the philosophy or the literature or their library. He was rightly broken. It says that his spirit was provoked. That means he was, he was cut to the heart. On the one hand, he was angry that there were so many idols and so many people subject to those idols who were supposed to be what? Worshiping the one true living God. That God was being denied all that glory in that ancient city. And at the same time, he was also broken by the multitudes who had put their faith in what? In the power and wisdom of these false gods. No power and no wisdom in an idol. These are the gospel lenses that I believe every single Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is supposed to have when we look around us. When we see in this broken world all the idols. Paul was not enamored with the artistic value of the temple and the statues. And they are incredible. Some still standing today. He did not rejoice in the city's high culture of philosophy, art, and literature. And as a Christian, he saw what we should see in Athens, in San Jose, and I would say any other city of man. He saw what? He saw lost people. He saw lost people. He saw image bearers of God seeking wisdom and power and hope in those things that have no wisdom or power or hope. In all these false idols, all these religions, and all these temples to gods that what? They did not exist. They did not exist. My beloved, if, if Paul had fled from Berea and he landed in 21st century San Jose, if he ended up here, his response would have been the same. He'd have been provoked in his spirit. Not because he would have seen the temples of Zeus or Poseidon or Apollos. He would have seen temples to Apple and Facebook and Netflix, would he not? And he would have seen in San Jose the same evil that resides behind every single idol. And that is a human heart, listen, that believes someone or something has greater value, greater majesty, greater glory than God himself and bows down to that. Tim Keller, I think, sums up well idolatry for the modern man. Listen, he writes, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give, that's a good definition for us, my beloved. If Paul were here, he would see our radical pursuit for identity. We have no idea who we are as a people anymore, and so we run around trying to get people to affirm who we are. We try to prove ourselves in our jobs and in school, by our material possessions. We try, to, we try to prove ourselves on social media by the number of followers we have or the number of likes we get. I, that's pathetic. I mean, even, even a sober-minded non-believer can say, what a terrible pursuit for identity on something as, as um, completely vain as social media. He would see our obsession with our physical appearance he would see our, our need for entertainment and I would say our addiction for comfort. In this valley, he would see the all-knowing, omnipresent, all-powerful God of the smartphone as we sit in our hands gazing at it. Would he not? Lori and I were out to dinner a couple weeks back and there was a table, husband, wife, two daughters, all four on their phone like this. And I glanced over and they were like this and I thought, oh, they're praying. Oh, no, they're not praying. They're on their phone. The question, my beloved, is do you see what Paul sees? Do you see it too? Do you see all those around you who have, as Keller said, their hearts and imaginations absorbed by the modern idols? And if so, if you see that, are you a missionary or are you an imposter? You say, well, how would I know that? Well, the question is, what do you do with this knowledge? Look at verse 17. Paul he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul was provoked. His spirit which agitated, he was broken over the lostness of the city. Now, I, I want you to notice what he did not do. He did not judge. Did you notice that? He didn't elevate himself to a position of judge and then adjudicate the, the idolatry in the city and condemn the Athenians in their hearts. Didn't do that. Many professing Christians today have left places like San Jose, Los Angeles, New York with that condemnation. Paul didn't do that, and he's in Athens. Nor did he do this. He did not become discouraged or slothful. 
He did not say to himself, this is a lost cause. There's no hope here. How can I bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a place that is so saturated by so many idols? So many people, my beloved, have left places like California saying what? It's a lost cause. Let the 40 million perish. Not the Apostle Paul, not in Athens. No, his spiritual provocation led to action. His spending time in the synagogue and the marketplace doing what? Look at verse 17. He reasoned with them. So what does that mean? That word in the Greek actually means to have dialogue with, to exchange ideas with. In other words, you know what Paul did? He went to the synagogues, he went to the marketplace, and he said, I want to talk to you about the living God. And he heard their philosophies. He heard about their religions. He heard their struggles. He heard their perceptions of what is real and and the end of life. And he reasoned with them. He talked to them to draw right conclusions about God, about man, about the universe, about the purpose of life, about the end of life. In other words, Paul did what we talked about last week. He proclaimed and he explained the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was patient with their philosophies and their religions, some dating back hundreds of years. So hundreds of years He's going to be bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ in. He knew it would take more than a tweet. Listen, it would take more than a tweet, more than a 30-second soundbite, more than a podcast in order to explain the gospel to those who were so ensnared by idolatry. Now, I know that we're good at that. We're good at throwing out the tweet or the 30-second soundbite. That's not how Paul saw it because that's not how it works. Paul refused to sit in judgment He refused to sit in the throes of despair, and instead he spent the time reasoning with them from God's word. Why? Well, why did he do that? Well, he loved them. Simple. He loved the lost. He loves Jesus Christ. He had a love. Jesus Christ had a love for him, and in that love, he saw these image bearers who were not worshiping the living God, but false gods, and therefore he loved them, and out of his love, he was a missionary that reasoned with them. The apostle Paul was no imposter. We know that from how he lived his life. So the question for you, my beloved, is does your heart break over the lost souls here in this city? Does it really? Ask yourself that. Does it really break when you see all the idolatry? Are you provoked to that same type of passion? Maybe the righteous anger that leads you to doing something for them. Now you might say, Pastor, listen, we can't march into a synagogue. We're going to get arrested. True. And I I can't just go to the marketplace. These places don't even exist any longer where we can exchange ideas of religion and philosophy and worldviews. True also. This is a hard place to do missions work. But let me ask you this, my beloved. Who is that one person at your dinner table every night? Who's that one person in your extended family? Who's that one coworker or that one neighbor that you never reasoned with that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't want to use the excuses of, we don't have access anymore to the synagogues and the marketplaces. That may be true here. We want to still try to get into some of those places. But ask yourself personally as a missionary with those people in your life, who's that one person that you can reason with today, tonight, this week, about the glory of God and Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith? Who is it? Who is it? Mark that person down in your mind as you can begin to pray for them. The heart of a missionary is a heart of love for the lost, my beloved. So first we see, I pray, that the internal workings of the missionary's heart is one of love that motivates him to action. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the missionary's audience. Who are these people that we talk to, that Paul talked to? Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, Paul, And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Another said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So as Paul's, he's reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues. He's reasoning with those who had gathered in the marketplace. He's he's obviously preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very similar, he gets a, a mixed reaction. Very similar from what you should expect here in this diverse culture of San Jose. There are other places throughout this country where they're much more um, homogeneous in their worldview. San Jose is not the place. You're going to get lots of responses to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He notes the Epicureans. The Epicureans, they, were, they followed a, a fourth century philosopher by the name of Epicurus. Not a shock, right? Um, the Epicureans were 
probably very much like modern-day agnostics. They didn't deny the existence of God or the gods, um, but they, they believed that if God was real, that he had absolutely no influence on mankind. There was no providence in any way. He didn't move amongst his creation. In other words, they were, they were materialists <clears throat> way before the modern man, and they believed that everything came from Adam's and returned to Adam's, and therefore they fully rejected any concept of life after death, right? Not, not the kind of people you want to be hanging out with. <clears throat> so their philosophy in life was this, maximize pleasure now. Pleasure-seeking was the chief aim for a good life. Anyone in San Jose that matches that description for you? Pleasure-seeking, the supreme goal of life. The Stoics were the other extreme. They were, they were pantheists, and they believed in what was called the divine logos. Interesting, right? The divine word. And they believed that divine logos was not only in all of nature, all plants and animals, the stars, the sea, and of course, human beings, but the Stoics also believed in this divine logos that bound everything together. So you can think of the force in Star Wars, and you're going to get really close to the Stoics, right? This binding nature. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they were leading schools of philosophy in Paul's day when he was in Athens. And so they would have fundamentally disagreed with Paul teaching about God being not only transcendent but imminent. Not only creator of all that is seen and unseen, but providential and involved in man's life. And certainly they would have disagreed with Paul talking about this God being one God, a personal God that can be known and you can know. So hence their highbrow derision. Look at, they ask rhetorically in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? The, ba- the word babbler in the Greek is fantastic. It literally means seed speaker. And you say, well, what does that come from? The, uh, the birds would, would actually scavenge around for little bits of seeds, and so this actually was pulled from that. And, and what they're saying is this guy is someone who takes scraps of knowledge like a scavenger bird and he picks them up and he puts them in his mouth and then he spews it out with any coherency, no good worldview, no good philosophy, right? So they call him a, a babbler, a seed speaker. Now, in Luke chapter 16, as Jesus uh, was teaching on the inability of man to serve two masters, he said you cannot serve man, God and money, Luke tells us that in uh, Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they said what? They ridiculed Jesus. They called him similar, you are a seed babbler. You're making no sense. Now, the Christian in, in the Western world, we should not be surprised when people call us seed babblers. You're, you're making no sense. Especially the academic elite, when, when they ridicule us for proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is true and living, that he is one God, that he is knowable, and that Jesus Christ came as a man to redeem the lost, we should not be surprised. Remember from last week, modern man does not see faith and reason having any relationship. And so if you're going to proclaim a gospel of salvation by grace through faith to someone who has said reason, what is reasonable is only that which is scientific, then of course they're going to look at you as though you're out of your mind too. Uh, any talk about God, uh, let alone his plan of salvation, will be met with similar resistance. So we should expect that. We certainly should expect that here in a secular culture, the most unchurched, dechurched place in the entire country. At the same time, Luke tells us, look at the latter part of verse 18. Others said, speaking of Paul, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So notice that as polytheists, they, they automatically assume that Paul's polytheist too. He's not talking about the one true living God. He's just talking about another God, some God from the east, right? Because they're, they're in west, they're in Athens, some God from the east, some guy named Jesus. They never heard that God before. And something about this, this anastasis, this resurrection, this Jesus is attached to raising people from the dead. Now, they were obviously intrigued by that, as anybody would be when it comes to God talking about raising you from the dead to eternal life. Now, for the, for the Greeks, this would not have been necessarily a new teaching that, that mortal man can be raised by the gods. It would have been somewhat familiar, but in a different light. According to their mythologies, Aeolus was a Greek king, one of many stories, where Zeus raised him from the dead and made him king of the winds. Uh, there was another Greek doctor by the name of Asclepius, 
And he evidently had these, this is all mythology, he had these exceptional skills of, of being able to heal people and bring them back from the dead too. Well, Zeus thought that this was contrary to the natural order, and so the story goes that Zeus struck him dead with a, with a thunderbolt, but then Apollos came along later, and he raised him from the dead, and he granted him access to Mount Olympus and made him a god too. One more story, Helia, Greek princess, she was going to be sacrificed with her brother. Both she and her brother escaped on a flying ram, but as she was in flight, she slipped off the ram's back into the water where she drowned and she died. But then Poseidon came and raised her to eternal life. And so this idea of mortals being raised by the gods would not have been a completely new teaching. But for the Greeks, these were all exceptions to the rule. These were all acts of the gods doing something in particular for certain people. And so when Paul comes along and says this, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, is the resurrection and the life, when he teaches that all people, regardless of a place or time, by grace through faith, who believe in him, will never die, even when their bodies die, would have certainly caught their ears. Right? They were very intrigued that this was not going to be an exception to the rule in their Greek myths, but actually available to all people by grace through faith. And so what do they do? Look at verse 19. They, they took him, Paul, and brought him to the Aeropagus, the Aeropagus, oh, brutal, saying this, listen, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The Areopagus, the, it's Areopagus, means hill of Ares or hill of Mars. Hence the translation in the King James Version. You've probably heard Mars Hill, which is probably the most common translation. The Areopagus was not just the name of the place, it was also the Athenian court. And I want you to listen closely. For centuries, the, this court met at Mars Hill. And in their meeting, they would rule on both civil and criminal cases, and they would also rule on philosophies and religions that came into the city. And in coming into the city, they would actually try to guard and protect the gods of Athens that already existed. In fact, it was the same court that tried Socrates centuries before. The exact same court that Paul is standing before, Socrates stood before in 399 B.C. And it's really interesting. Socrates was charged with two things. One, impiety against the gods of Athens. And number two, introducing new deities. Primarily a monotheistic god. One god. In other words, the charges would apply to Paul as well. Look at verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean, this one true living God. Now, Socrates was sentenced to death, and he was executed by the drinking of a poisonous beverage of hemlock. Most scholars do not believe that Paul was on trial for his teachings. In fact, Luke makes a parenthetic comment in verse 21 that agrees with this. Look at verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, Paul was certainly teaching something new, and so they wanted, they wanted to hear it. They wanted all those at the Areopagus to hear it. Um, and even though Paul was not officially on trial, um, he knew, in light of what happened at the other cities, that to proclaim Christ publicly was a very dangerous thing. He understood that his... His life was at risk. My beloved, the missionary's audience, regardless of time and place, will always be a dangerous place. Right? We live in a fallen world. So anytime we're going to faithfully proclaim and reason the God of the Bible, um, we put ourselves at risk. Um, but the response will be mixed. I mean, some, those in Philippi and Thessalonica, they wanted to kill Paul. The Epicureans and the Stoics, well, they, they dismissed his teachings as as foolish and ignorant. And then others still, they wanted to know more. Look at verse 20. They said, we wish to know what these things mean. So they were curious. And so here's the key for you as a missionary in the 21st century, my beloved. You are not to be surprised by the various responses you get from people when you preach and teach a crucified Savior. When you reason with people about the living God from the Bible, you ought not be surprised. Some will be hostile to what you say. Some will be dismissive and tell you that you're foolish. 
Others will be intrigued and they'll, they'll want to know more. Listen to me closely. You have no control over their response. None. Right? If, if we do it in humility and grace and we speak the truth in love and we reason well from the scriptures, God will determine how they respond. Now, that's oftentimes we don't do this because we're afraid of how they're going to respond. Right? That's not the responsibility of the missionary. God controls that. The key for us to understand is this. Listen. None of these responses, good, bad, or otherwise, are even possible unless we open our mouths and proclaim Christ. The responses are not possible. You cannot have a neighbor dismiss you, get angry with you, be curious about it, or even receive Christ if you do not tell them about Christ. Paul faithfully opened his mouth to the lost in Athens, and God was pleased to save some. My beloved, of all the places in the world, for someone to be intimidated, it would have been Paul here in Athens. Before this ruling body, a place that had ruled for centuries, I mean, this is the, the birthplace of the literature and the philosophies, some of the greatest minds in the world. He should have been intimidated if he did not know Christ, but he was not. Paul was fully aware, too, of their status from a literary and cultural standpoint, but he also understood what he would later write to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, listen, He said, the wisdom of this world is what? Folly with God. Paul knew that. For it is written, Paul writes, he, God, catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are what? They're futile to him. They're futile. The audience we face in the Western world and right here in San Jose is a challenging audience. To deny that is a lie. If you say that it's not, then you probably haven't spent much time sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the missionary, in every place, in every time, cannot and should not be concerned about how the audience responds. Are you going to be dismissed? Are you going to be ridiculed? Are you going to be persecuted? Maybe to the point of death. The missionary, who is not an imposter, will refuse, listen closely, to capitulate to a council culture. The missionary who's not an imposter will refuse to capitulate to a cancel culture that tells them what? Tells us what? Be quiet. Remain silent. Don't talk about your God. Don't talk about Jesus. And don't talk about my sin. Or we're going to have you thrown in jail. Or certainly get you off the job. The missionary of Jesus Christ will refuse to believe that the battle is ever lost in any place refuse to believe that there is no hope for places like San Jose and Los Angeles and New York and every other place where God needs to be proclaimed and churches need to be planted. Instead, like Paul, the missionary will what? 1 Corinthians 1 will preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called by God, both Jews and Gentiles, what? Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So missionaries of Jesus Christ will never be intimidated by any audience, but we will faithfully proclaim a crucified Savior. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. Not Zeus, not Apollos, not Ares, not Apple, not Facebook, not Netflix, not Epicureanism, not Stoicism, today not socialism, not materialism, not any ism of any kind has the power and wisdom of God. It is a person. Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Jesus Christ, the man, is the power of God. He is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He spoke creation into being with his words. And he, listen, he really does have the power to raise people from the dead. That's not a myth. That's not a myth. If you're fleeing persecution and find yourself on the back of a flying ram and you fall into the sea and you drown, it won't be Poseidon who comes and gets you. It'll be Jesus Christ who descends into those waters and brings you back to life if you know him. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the true wisdom of God. The Stoics talked about the Logos, this divine word. It's Christ in the flesh. You know that. The word of God became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. So that what? So that he could reveal God the Father. So that he could reveal to those made in God's image, image bearers, that we are not to be in rebellion against God. To offer us hope by grace through faith to reveal the God who knows us and wants to love us in Christ. My beloved, I hope that we've seen one, the missionary's heart, two, the missionary's audience. And I got one more for you. I pray you're still with me. The missionary's work. 
what is the missionary's work? We've already established that to make, the missionary's work is to make God known, right? The creator of the universe to make God known and accessible through the proclamation and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the missionary's work then in Athens for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and that's the missionary's work today here in San Jose. But I want you to note, the missionary of Jesus Christ never engages in the Great Commission in a vacuum, right? He is always, she is always working in the context of a particular people group at a particular point in time in human history. And how well we communicate the gospel will be, listen, contingent upon how well we know our audience. How well you communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, how well you reason with people here in San Jose will be contingent upon how well you know people in San Jose. I'll give you an example. If, if I'm sitting with my family around dinner and my kids and my grandkids are all there and Lori's made one of her magnificent, very famous spaghetti meatballs with the, the generation homemade marinara, a recipe that I can't share with you because it's top secret. And I said to her, it was so good, I said to her, I said, Lori, you know, I can, really, I can really taste the Italian mushrooms and I can really taste the wine in this sauce. It's so good. And she would say, yeah, it is good, thank you. Now that's how I would communicate that to Lori. If Ellie were at the table and enjoying the feast, I wouldn't say that to her, I'd say, Ellie, yum, yum. And she'd say, mmm. We are communicating the same thing. This is a delicious meal, but we're communicating very differently based upon how well we know our audience. The same is true for us, my beloved, as missionaries. If we want to be effective missionaries in San Jose, we want to know people in San Jose. We want to know our audience. We want to know the culture that we're trying to reach by proclaiming and what? And explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before Paul gets to verses 24 through 29, which is really kind of the centerpiece of this chapter. We're going to get to that next week. I want you to see two pre-evangelistic tools. When I say pre-evangelistic, things he does in order to work well in the context of his culture to bring the gospel to bear upon his audience. Two things that he effectively does to engage the Athenians that we want to do today to engage anybody in our mission field. First, he gets a pulse on their spiritual state and then affirms what is good. Did you notice that? He gets a pulse on their spiritual state, and then he wants to affirm what he sees as good. The second thing is he finds an entry point for the dialogue, and of course that is the unknown God. I want to look at each of these, and I'll close. Number one, Paul has been paying attention. He's not just a sightseer. He's been paying attention, and he wants his audience to know that he not only gets them, I understand you, but he wants to affirm them. Look at verse 22. So they, they bring him before the Oropagus and these men. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Paul had time to do some sightseeing. He wandered around. He saw all these temples and all these idols and all these altars to these gods. And he concluded that the Athenians were a very, very religious people. Now, that term for us, when we hear that, we kind of get a pushback. As evangelical Christians, you get a pushback. Uh, Paul, I, I do believe, and there's debate on this, I believe that Paul was saying it in a complimentary way. In fact, the, the literal translation would be something like this. He observed that they had a deep and sincere respect or fear for the divine. Right? There was a reverence for someone or something of holiness beyond them. The Athenians were very serious about their gods. I would argue, grievously so, Many of them were more serious about their belief in the false gods than many Western Christians are about their belief in a true God. That is a horrible statement, but I believe likely true. So in one statement, did you see what Paul did? He not only affirms that he cares enough about them to get to know them. Look at 23, he says, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So he says, I know you, I get you, You you guys are serious about your religion. But then he also affirms their sincerity. Although misguided, he affirms their sincerity for spiritual things. My beloved, I want you to know that Paul is not, he's not trying to manipulate them as a salesperson. He's not trying to objectify or use them. He's building a relationship. Paul's building a relationship. How do I know that? Because Paul loves them. Paul loves them and he wants them to hear the gospel. So what? So they'll repent, believe, and become members of the same family that he's in, God's eternal family. And so he, 
He took the time to learn about their culture and their way of life, and he communicated that to them. I, I, I know you. I, I get you. And even amidst all the idolatry and all the false worship that we're told literally cut the, the apostles' heart through and through, he found a common point to build upon. We can, I believe, and we should do the exact same here with all those in our mission field. We can and need to show a love for all those image bearers that we know that do not know Christ. All of them. We need to know and we should want to know if we love them. You know, where, where were they born? How did you end up here in San Jose, of all places? How did you get here? You know, are, are you married? Do you have children? Where, where do you work? What are, your, what are your fears? What makes you happy? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? What are major events in your life? These are things that we want to know. But that requires us being attentive and taking time and, and asking questions and truly loving someone to get to know them in that way. And, and I'll tell you this, if you spend enough time with someone and you get to know them, you're going to find God's common grace in their life. You're going to find something that you can grab onto and build on, even though they may not know, know Christ as Lord and Savior. You spend time, you're going to find non-believers who are devoted to their marriages, devoted to raising their children well. You're going to find people in your mission field who are faithful employees at work, faithful students at school, they may be civic-minded and they may be active in the local government. They may be that neighbor that serves other neighbors even though they do not believe Christ is the ultimate servant. Getting to know people, and I mean really know people, not to use them, but to know them, to love them, and then to find a way to affirm them is a wonderful way to build relationships. It's a wonderful way to do some good pre-evangelism. You say, well, how long would that, might that take? I, it may take a week, a month, a year, 10 years, who knows? But you're there to love them. They're lost without a Savior. Have the same heart of Christ and look upon them and be broken over it. There's something else that Paul does. Number two, after all of Paul's careful observations, he finds a strategic point of entry to talk about God. This point, he says, is the unknown God. Look at verse 23. He said, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, so I've got to know you, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, you, you, I don't know how many times you've read this, that <clears throat> who is this unknown God? I mean, there's an altar, there's worship, there are prayers, there's sacrifice. Who is this unknown God? There's some debate about this, but most historians uh, and Greek historians trace it all the way back to the 5th century B.C., and there was a story about this plague that came upon the Athenians, um, an epidemic that swept through Athens. And so they were desperate for help. So the oracle of Delphi sends a group of men over to the island of Crete to ask one of their most famous prophets and poets and philosophers, Epimenides, if he would come and fix the problem. So Epimenides gets on the boat, he sails back, to Athens, and he, he brought all these sheep, these black and white sheep, and he takes them up to the Areopagus, and there atop of that location, the exact place where Paul was about to reveal the identity of this unknown God, he releases all these sheep, and he lets them wander throughout the city. And he said, wherever a sheep lies down, slaughter that sheep, sacrifice that sheep to the nearest idol or God, wherever that sheep is. And so they did that. The problem is not all the sheep decided to lie down next to an altar or a temple. Some of them just decided to lie down nowhere, nowhere important. So his orders were this, sacrifice that sheep also and then make an altar in that place to who? To an unknown God. And so they did. They set up these altars throughout the city to these unknown gods where these sheep would be sacrificed. And according to the story, the sacrifices worked. It did the trick. The epidemic ended, and Athens was delivered from death. Pretty amazing story. As we will see next week, the Apostle Paul takes their belief in this unknown God, and he does what? He reveals the true identity of the one true living God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 23. Paul says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then Paul goes 
And Paul does what Paul does best. He preaches Christ crucified. He talks about God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of the heavens and the earth. He talks about God and all his sufficiency, that he is God, is all sufficient, and that he is the sustainer of all that is seen and unseen. He talks about God as the maker of man, making man in his image as his offspring. For what purpose? That we might know God, that God might know us, and that we might love one another. In other words, Paul does something extraordinary here. He takes him from the altar of this unknown God and he takes him by the hand to the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ. So they might what? So they might see that there is one true living God. So they might know that that savior of the one true living God is in fact Jesus Christ. Not multiple black and white sheep sent out to be sacrifices to these multiple gods to appease the wrath upon Athens, but the single sinless lamb who was sent from, not from Mars Hill by Epimenides, but from heaven by God the Father. Sent by God the Father to be what? To be the perfect lamb of God who really can take away our sins, who really does have that power. The sacrificial lamb who did not wander around the streets of Jerusalem, but entered Jerusalem as a suffering servant and then ascended the cross. He did what? He laid down too. He laid down his life at Calvary. And it was by his broken body and his spilled blood that we might be saved. That, that he was able, through his sacrifice, to appease the holy wrath of God for all the sins that we committed, for all the just desert. And in so doing what? He ended the op- ultimate epidemic Not the epidemic that swept through Athens in the 5th century, but the epidemic of sin and death that plagues every man, woman, and child. And he ended that. He ended the judgment of an eternity in hell for all who what? For all who repent and believe in him. Not a false god, not an unknown god, not an idol, but all who would turn to him and seek forgiveness for their sins all who would turn away from the idolatry of this world and turn to the living God, that they might be healed and brought in as a son or daughter. For all who what? Who turn to the power and wisdom of God, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has the power to raise someone from the dead. And he really can do it. By grace, through faith, he really can do it. My beloved, you are surrounded by people who do not know Christ as Lord. Surrounded by them. You're surrounded by people who serve gods, they don't even know who those gods are. They don't know who they are. Their conscience has been so seared by sin that they don't see it. San Jose, just like Athens 2,000 years ago, is filled with worshipers at the altars of these unknown gods. Now these gods may be unknown to those who do not know Christ, but they're not unknown to us. By God's grace, through the Holy Spirit and His Word, we can see them. You can see the altar of money that has captivated so many of your loved ones, your family members. You can see that desire for success and that desire for an identity that is well known by others that captivates your neighbors and your coworkers. You can see it clearly. You can see how the gods of this culture, the lust for power, the need to be relevant, identity politics, how it's molding and shaping and I would say perverting an entire generation of young minds. We can see that. I pray you can see it clearly. The question, and I'll close with this, is what, if anything, will you do about it? What will you do about it? If you do, in fact, see the idolatry and the altars that have consumed our modern-day Athens, what will you do about it? Will you be like Paul? And will you call these unknown gods out? These gods, as Keller said, absorb the hearts and imaginations of those people that we love. If we love these people, shouldn't that provoke in our spirit a desire for them to be set free? Will we be bold enough to point them out and expose the inability of these false gods to comfort, protect, or save and reveal the power and wisdom of God who is Christ? Will we be loving enough, my friends, to help others see the futility of their false religions, their unknown gods, and instead point them to the cross of Christ and the one true living God who offers salvation, listen, to everyone freely, by grace, through faith. No one's excluded.
Not a single soul in San Jose who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is excluded from the grace of God. Not one. Not one person in your mission field, not one family member, not a single coworker or neighbor is excluded from this. Right? But if they don't know about it, they can't repent and believe. Will we, as Spurgeon said, will we attempt to spread God's kingdom or will we reveal our lack of love for Christ by our silence? More pointedly, will we be missionaries or will we be imposters? More specifically, will you be a missionary or will you be an imposter? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't believe there's a soul in this room that does not see the the wickedness and the idolatry that is so pervasive, not only in this country, but certainly the state and in this city. I pray, Father, that you would use this text and the power of your Holy Spirit to not only give us eyes to see these false gods and these unknown altars that we bow down to, but that you would provoke in us, as you did the Apostle Paul, a spirit of deep love for the lost. That as Christian missionaries, Father, we we display our love for you in our loving the lost by sharing with them, by explaining to them, and by revealing to them your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see that we don't want to be imposters. We don't want to reveal our lack of love for you by our silence. But instead, Father, that we would be true missionaries here in this field. The harvest is, in fact, plentiful, and the workers are few. I pray, Father, that you would send out all my brothers and sisters here to work in that harvest field. Do that, Lord, in this place that we might see many in San Jose come to a saving grace. Do it to make yourself known that you are glorified here above all else. Do it, Lord, so that Jesus Christ is not ridiculed, but that he is seen as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is. I pray you would put that upon our hearts and that you would move us mightily by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.